0: Hey, good morning, Three Circle. Great to be with you guys today. Beautiful day, beautiful weekend, and we're going to have a great day in here. We are going to continue our series on the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Now, when we put out a few weeks ago that we were going to do a series on the greatest prayer ever recorded, uh, everyone assumed we were going to do what we know as the Lord's Prayer. But we learned last week that we're not talking about what we call the Lord's Prayer because Jesus would have never prayed that prayer. Jesus gave us what we call the Lord's Prayer for us to pray as humans Jesus would have never asked God to forgive him of his sins, yet he teaches us to do that. So what we're looking at is a different prayer. We're looking at the high priestly prayer of Jesus, and we are saying that it is the greatest prayer that has ever been recorded, all right? So if you want to write that down, the high priestly prayer is the greatest. There's no other like it. This is a prayer that only Jesus could pray. Only Jesus, the eternal son, could pray a prayer like this, and we get the eavesdrop on Jesus We get to hear what it sounds like for the Son to talk to the Father in this amazing prayer. And so to give you some context to remember, when did this prayer happen? Well, it happened after the Last Supper, and it happened right before the crucifixion. At the Last Supper, where they had all just been, Jesus had done a lot of things. He had washed their feet. He had dismissed Judas, the betrayer. He had told them again that he's going to die and suffer. This was a dramatic dinner. This was a lot of bread, a lot of olive oil, a lot of wine. All those things have happened. And a lot of things happened at that dinner. So after dinner, they leave. And now there's 11 of them, not 12, with Jesus. And they're walking a path, probably single file, with Jesus at the head of the line. Someone has a torch. They don't have flashlights. Someone's walking with a torch. There's flame light flashing all over their faces. And every few steps, Jesus keeps stopping, turning around, and teaching them. And they're on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane where he's going to be arrested. Tomorrow he's going to die. And he keeps teaching them and teaching them and teaching them. And then he gets to a point, John says, where he stops. And this time he doesn't turn around and talk to them. He looks up to heaven and begins to talk to his Father. And he prays. Now this is an important prayer because, to our knowledge, the disciples had never heard him pray. A full prayer. Oh, well, they had gotten snippets, they had overheard things, but they just saw him go off and pray. But Jesus had never let them really listen to him, have a conversation with the Father, but he did this time, and he let them record it for us. So there's a reason we have the high priestly prayer. There's so much for us to learn, there's so much for us to understand, and so we're going to dive into that today. Martin Luther, We today's Reformation Day, we celebrate the day that Martin Luther tagged the his thesis onto the doors of the church to make amazing theological change. We're so glad he did. We celebrate that today. Well, Martin Luther said that this is one of the greatest places in all the Scripture, and he called this prayer a thunderbolt from heaven. That's what he called it. The Puritans preached from John 17 more than any other part of the Bible. That's what we're talking about today. And last week, we looked at the first section. In the first line of the prayer, Jesus said my father, the hour has come. And that means Jesus was in control. So I just want to remind you of what we looked at last week. What was about to happen, the crucifixion, the illegal trial in the middle of the night by the Sanhedrin, the beatings, the torture, the scourging, all of these things that Jesus was about to experience were not accidents. Jesus was in total control. That is why when Pilate during his trial, looked at him and said, "I have the power to crucify you." Jesus answered him by saying, "You have no power over me." because Jesus was in control. and the time was perfect, and the time was right, and he was fulfilling all of Old Testament prophecy. All of those things were being fulfilled in Christ. Well today we're going to the, go to the second section of the prayer. And, and if you're new to Three Circle, or this is just kind of maybe this is your first time with us, I want you to know this is what we do. We read the Bible, we talk about the Bible. That's what we do because we just think there's nothing better we could talk about, all right? I'm not interesting enough to come up with cool stuff to talk to you about, so I just come up here with a Bible and we read the awesome Word of God and then we talk about what it means. Y'all good with that? We good? Let's dive in, all right? John 17, 6-10, Jesus continues praying. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were... And there is the second part of this amazing prayer. Now, let's dive in. The first thing that I need to keep reminding us of to help us understand this prayer is something we need to understand about our God. Number one, when we say God at Three Circle, we believe in the Trinity. So when we say God, we're talking about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Now, anytime we try to come up with an example for us as finite creatures to understand our infinite God, it always falls short. Wouldn't you agree? But I'm still going to try, all right? So even though I'm going to fall short, I'm going to try. And there's a lot of different ways to do it, but I'm going to try to help you understand the Trinity a little bit, okay? So, and I learned this from a professor who, who was really great. So let's say I had Play-Doh in my hand. So can we just play pretend? I got a ball of Play-Doh in my hand right now, okay? And let's say I took that ball of Play-Doh, and every bit of it's Play-Doh. But then I took off of the Play-Doh, and I didn't separate it, but I just formed a little bump here. It's still connected. And then I form another little bump here. And then I form a third bump over here. So I've got a ball of Play-Doh that has little bumps on it. Three of them. One here, one there, one there. All three of the bumps are distinct. This bump isn't this bump. This bump isn't that bump, right? They're distinct. They're different bumps. But they are all what? They're all Play-Doh. They're all part of the Play-Doh. They are not separated from the Play-Doh. They're still Play-Doh. They share in play doness they didn't divide the Plato to become what they are. They're still a whole piece of Plato, but it is distinct. That's a bump, that's a bump, of that, that's a bump. Okay, that's my way of helping you with the Trinity today. Because God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Spirit, they didn't separate it all out. There's not like a third here, a third there, and a third there. No, it's all God. But distinct persons, the Son is not the Father, the Father is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Son. If your brain's hurting right now, welcome to Three Circle Church. We started to call this series, the series where we hurt everyone's brains. Because when finite creatures like you and I think about an infinite God, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around it. But we should. And that's what we're hearing here. We are overhearing Jesus, the infinite Son of God, talking to his infinite Father. And the first thing you need to remember is this idea of infinity is one of the attributes of God. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Our God is infinite. Infinity. And what that means is he is limitless. Our God is limitless. He has limitless power. He has limitless knowledge. And he has limitless presence, meaning he is everywhere at one time. He has all power and he has all knowledge. Jesus shares in that but understand that Jesus is also unique to the rest of the trinity he's also a man he was not created at christmas time have yourself a merry you know we're about to celebrate all that i mean the trees have been up since july in the walmart target we're about to celebrate that season of christmas jesus did not become Jesus at Christmas time, he had always been the Son of God. He became the Son of man. He became a human at Christmas time, and he forever will be the God man, fully God, fully man. But we're overhearing him speak to his Father as the eternal Son. We're getting to hear an infinite conversation, which is why some of the language sounds foreign to us because Jesus will talk about things that haven't happened yet like they have happened. The whole prayer, he acts like he's already been crucified, already been buried, and already risen from the dead. He's talking like that. And we go, well, how can he talk like that? Well, because he is outside of time, he is over time. To him, there is no evening and morning and yesterday and tomorrow, time is before him, he is infinite. And we don't understand that. We should just be thankful for it. And Jesus stepped into time for us, for you, and for me. And so when we look at this prayer, we see the infinite nature of God. And then let's look at the words of the prayer. The second section, Jesus says, I have manifested your name. So one of the things he says to his father, and he's letting us hear, is he says, I have manifested your name to the people who you gave me out of the world. What does this mean? It means that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. It means Jesus came to show us who God is. And he's the only way we could have ever known. Because we're finite and God is infinite. Jesus put himself into a finite body, human, so that we could see who God is. Because finite eyes can't look at an infinite God. Does that make sense? finite ears. Can't hear the voice of an infinite God. Without him coming to us. You do know that all other world religions teach you that you've got to find a way to God. So all world religions say to finite humans, you need to find your way to the infinite God. And you cannot. You can't do that. Christianity says this infinite God came to our finite world for us. So that we could see him. And see, let me tell you why I think this is such a good series for us. Because I think in our modern world we've just gotten so comfortable with Jesus. And I've told you this before, we've got our versions of Jesus. We've got California granola hippie Jesus. Long hair, loves everybody. He's got one of those little Volkswagen vans and a surfboard on top. He just loves everybody. Peace and love, man. Or we've got what we've seen in the movies. All, Jesus, all the Jesus movies, Jesus has a British accent. Nobody from the South ever going to get to play Jesus. Hey, y'all does not work in the Garden of Gethsemane very well. So you've got to have a European accent to play Jesus. And there's all these little versions we have. But one thing I think is we, we don't stand in awe of Jesus the way we should. Because for us, we've made him just the son of man and we forget he's the son of God. But the disciples got it. When John wrote his gospel, remember, John was a teenager when he was on the earth with Jesus. When Jesus goes to heaven, John's in his 70s when he wrote his gospel. And do you remember his opening lines? He says, He was the word made flesh and the word walked among us and we beheld him with our own eyes. We touched him, we talked to him, we could hear him. You can tell this old man John is still blown away that he sat next to the creator God by a campfire. He still can't believe he broke bread with God. He's blown away by it. But we've got this man, Jesus is my BFF. Jesus is my buddy. We teach a whole generation of kids that, that they can live however they want to live. And God's just an option. Let's just put it on our list of being good southern people. We got a church, but it's not too radical. We just kind of do our thing. We do what we want to do, but we love Jesus too. And my friends, that is not understanding who Jesus is. I think it's good that we tremble before Jesus again. They did. The night he stilled a storm while they were in the boat with him, they were terrified of Jesus and his power. So it's good that we would study this together. And Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. We couldn't know him apart from that. That's why Jesus at the Last Supper was talking to Philip. Do you all remember Philip, one of the disciples? Now, Philip was an accountant. How many accountants do I have in the room? Be honest if you're an accountant. Y'all love your numbers, don't you? And we love you guys. We'd all be broke without you. You keep the world running. We're grateful for you numbers people. But Philip was one of you, man. He, he loved the numbers. And so famously, when Jesus asked Philip at the feeding of the 5,000, he had a little bread and a little fish. He says, Philip, you think we can feed all these people with this? He knew what Philip was going to do. Philip's like, hang on a second. He starts adding it all up. No, we can't do that. And then, of course, Jesus miraculously does what only he does. Well... Fast forward to the Last Supper, and Jesus has washed their feet, and all these things are happening, and it's this beautiful moment. And Philip looks at Jesus, and he says, Hey, Jesus, we want to, can you show us God? We want to see God. We want to get to see him. And Jesus, in verse 9, says to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father How can you say, show us the Father? So Jesus is saying to Philip, hey, you can't see God except through me. I am here to show you God. I'm manifesting his name to you. Remember the Plato? If I've seen the Son, then I've seen the Father and the Spirit because they're all what? God. See, I'm just taking, it's really simple, isn't it, when you look at it that way? When you understand what Jesus has done for us, we would never know God apart from him. In fact, God has specifically revealed himself to us in Jesus in the Word. Now, let's talk about the two types of revelation. When I say revelation, I mean revealed. God had to reveal himself to us or we couldn't know him otherwise. Remember, we can't get to him. He had to come to us. And he did it generally and he did it specifically. Now, generally, he has revealed himself to us through creation. You may not realize that. It happened for me this morning. I got up early before the sun came up, getting ready for church. I make myself a cup of coffee, which we all know came straight from the throne room of God, the existence of coffee. Again, coffee and good things like that are all part of general revelation. It's God's goodness to all of humanity. That's why the Bible says the rain falls on evil, wicked people and good people that know God. It's just common grace. So I fix my, and I can hear my little dog scratching at the door. He wants to get a hello on Sunday morning. I get my coffee and I walk outside and Gus is doing, my dog, he's doing his yoga poses. He's like, yeah just stretching out, you know. And then I hear the noise. And the noise I hear every morning is the three or four squirrels that live in the pecan tree out back. And they're starting to do their thing. They're running all over that tree. They like to jump down in the yard with a pecan in their mouth because they know my dog can't catch them. So they'll sit in the yard and they wait. And here he comes. He runs. He runs as hard as he can. And they'll wait to the last possible second. They're just sitting there relaxing, looking at one another. And when he gets just a few feet, just like lightning, they're up on top of the fence barking at him which sounds like laughter and and i all this is happening this morning they're running around the tree Gus is growling at them knowing he can't catch them I'm drinking a wonderful cup of coffee there's a breeze blowing through the limbs of the pecan tree out back and I knew I'm teaching on this and I can't help but go this is this is general revelation Everything out here nudges my heart towards something bigger than me. I didn't create coffee beans. I didn't create Gus. I didn't create the squirrels or the tree of the breeze. It's all God, and I'm just enjoying it. And, And that's general revelation. And for every human being who's ever lived, God gently, it's not a specific pull. It does not save. It doesn't pull you to salvation. It's not a strong enough pull for that. But general revelation just gently tugs on human hearts. Just a little tug. The movies and his go, yeah, there's something bigger here. There's something more going on. When you stand before an ocean, it does that, doesn't it? For you hunters in the room, when you look and a group of deer come through the woods and the breeze is blowing, something, something big's happening. Something's tugging on your heart. You stand before a mountain and you go, this is humble. It grabs your heart. And the Bible says every human being feels it, but not every human being follows the tug. But when Jesus came, that wasn't God just gently tugging. That was God grabbing humanity's face and going, here's who I am. Specific. This is who God is. This is how he sounds. This is how he acts. This is what he does. This is who he is. It's Jesus. That's why at Three Circle we say it's all about Jesus. Amen, church? It's all about Jesus. We're people of Jesus. So God has specifically revealed himself to us in Jesus and his word. And then he goes on. In this prayer, we learn that Jesus says this. He says, these are people you gave me out of the world. Yours they were. Again, infinity and finite people listening. It'd be like me listening to two mathematicians from MIT talking. I can hear them talking. I don't have a clue what they're talking about. Right? They're beyond me. This conversation of us finite creatures overhearing infinite, talking the infinite in the presence of infinite, Son, Father, and Spirit, we're going, what? What do he mean by that? They were yours, and you have given them to me? And he's talking about these 11 disciples and the rest of us who will believe? What's Jesus talking about here? Well, a few things about salvation that we need to talk about. First of all, according to the Bible, most people will not receive Jesus. And that's a hard truth. Most people are not going to receive Jesus. Jesus said there's two gates. One is wide and broad, and one is narrow. Most are going to go through the broad gate that leads to destruction. Few will find the narrow gate. And I don't know about you, but I'm so grateful that that I'm going through the narrow gate. And if you're a Christian, I'm really glad you are. There's a narrow gate. Okay? I wish everyone would come to Jesus. Don't you? How many of you in this room wish that just everyone would believe in Jesus? Everyone. Everyone for all time. I wish that. I want that. Good news. You know who else does? Your Heavenly Father, the Bible says He wishes that no one would perish, but that all would come to eternal life. I'm so grateful for that, but the truth is, they won't. The truth is, they will not. Secondly, what we learn here is that God knows all things. Remember, we said God is infinite, right? If He's infinite, He knows everything. That includes knowing who will trust in Him. So when I, I gave my life to Christ at 12 years old in a dusty little camp in Kosciuszko, Mississippi, It's a booming metropolis in the middle of Mississippi. I think there's like a gas station. But there was a Christian camp there, and I gave my life to Jesus. And let me tell you what did not happen when I came to Jesus. God did not go, oh, my goodness, I never thought this would happen. I didn't surprise him. God is never surprised. He can't be. He's God. He created us with the propensity to be able to be surprised. He's not surprised. He's not surprised that you came to him, and he's also not surprised with how hard you are to deal with. He's not surprised when we fail. Remember, Jesus wasn't surprised when Peter denied him three times because Jesus told him six hours earlier exactly what would happen. Do you remember that? Hey, Peter, I'm praying for you because right now Satan is standing before my father and he's asking for you. He's coming for you. It's not going to go well, and Peter, like we all would, Peter goes, "I'll go to death for you." Six hours later, not so much. He knew he's not surprised. He's not surprised how hard we are to deal with. But let me tell you what he's also not surprised about: that you would believe in him. He knew you would believe in him. You were chosen before time began, and you go, "Well, I don't understand that." It's okay. You don't have to believe it. There's a lot we don't understand. But it's, the Bible teaches us God knew. He knows all things. Either he knows or he doesn't. Here's another thing, though. Because when we look at this, we go, well, wait a minute. I thought that I get to choose. I'm not a robot, right? I get to choose whether I believe in God or not. So how can you tell me that he's sovereign over all things and he's all-powerful, including choices, but yet I have choice? Well, let me just tell you. The Bible clearly teaches two concepts. The Bible teaches that humans make choices, no doubt about it. The Bible's clear that humans can make choices that have consequences, is why we are responsible for our sin, absolutely. But it also teaches clearly that God is sovereign over all things. And to you and I, remember I told you, understanding finiteness and infiniteness, infinity, understanding those two things is a key for your Christian life, it really is. Because here's one of those places in the Bible where my finite mind cannot reconcile the ability of God to be all-powerful and sovereign, and for me to still have free choice and free will. And for me, they don't reconcile, and for you, they don't either. But for God, no problem at all. He's infinite. So let me give you a rule of understanding the Bible. When you come to a place in the Bible where there's two things that seem irreconcilable, like this, and you go, but the Bible clearly teaches both, then you believe both. You just believe both. You believe that simultaneously these two things totally exist, totally cohesively, and there's no problem to an infinite God. You and I just cannot grasp it. Does that make sense, church? No, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to me either. And that's okay. It's the mysteries of our living God. But the truth is, here's how I look at it. I'm really glad that my salvation wasn't an accident. I didn't just fall into it. It was, it was planned out. God came after me, came after you. Instead of seeing a problem in it, why don't we as finite creatures just rejoice that we matter so much to God that He made a way to reach us, made a way to save us, made a way to come for us, and that we would have never chosen Him on our own. He came for us. Why don't we just rejoice in that today, right? How many of you can with me rejoice in your salvation today? And thank God that He came for you. And I don't understand fully how it happened. I don't know, man. All I know is... I liked, you know, baseball and cartoons at 12 years old, you know, and pro wrestling. I mean, Macho Man Randy Savage. That's what I liked. Somehow, at a camp, God got my attention. It was overwhelming, and I had to come to him. And I'm grateful. And you could tell your story about how you believed in Jesus, how it happened for you. Just be grateful and stand in awe of something that we can't even fully comprehend. But here's what I can tell you, too. God wishes everyone would come to him. And we do make choices. And if you're here today and you've never chosen Christ, we implore you by the power of the Bible, give your life to Jesus. In the tradition of men like, great men like John Wesley and great men like Charles Spurgeon who would stand in their pulpits and preach and say, come to Christ. I do the same today. In no way saying that I'm on the ground that those guys are on. So just consider me like a, a little, little management guy and they're the generals, okay? But, but I'm... In that voice, I'm saying to you, if you don't know Jesus, give your life to Jesus. He will save you. He's the only one who can. And then Jesus says this about his disciples. Now, there's 11 of them. Remember, one's gone. There's 11. And he says this, they have kept your word. If you want to know what a real Christian is supposed to look like and a real disciple, it looks like this. They have kept your word. This is important. So what this means is that one of the marks of discipleship is obedience one of the marks of discipleship what it means to be a disciple is that you obey the word of god and you can begin as i walk through this for the next few minutes ask yourself that question but the first question i think we ask when jesus looks at his father and he's praying about these 11 disciples and he says they have kept my word i think all of us immediately go no they didn't don't we I mean, we know these 11 guys through the Bible. We know these 11 old boys. that are stand- We just heard Philip totally get his theology wrong at the Last Supper. We know that Peter, in a few hours, what's Peter going to do? Denied Jesus- Is he keeping the word perfectly? And three of them, the inner three, James, John, and Peter, they keep falling asleep. They can't even pray with Jesus. We know that Peter gets so mad when they arrest Jesus that instead of like lovingly doing what he's supposed to do, he pulls out his sword and whacks a guy's ear off. I mean, they're They're a mess. All of them except John are going to run for their lives. They leave Jesus stranded. They don't go to the cross with him, only one. So we go, well, wait, what did Jesus mean when he said, they have kept my word? It doesn't look like they kept his word at all. Well, wouldn't that be true of us? Those of you who go, yes, I'm a Christian. If I were to to say, do you keep God's word? How many of you would go, yes, I keep God's word all the time. Liars. What did Jesus mean? When Jesus said they've kept my word, he did not mean perfection. He meant direction. And that's what he means for you as well. The mark of a real Christian is not perfection. It's direction. Let me tell you what I mean. Because you can contrast it against Judas, who is now gone. There's 11 of them. These 11 are different than him. Judas had what every sinner has. And you had it when you were born. If you don't have Christ, you still got it. There is a magnetic pull inside of us that pulls us away from God and away from his commands. Our natural desire is to disobey God and sin against him, and it pulls really hard in that direction. And for Judas, who never became a Christian, but he looked like he was one, for three and a half years, he hung out with Jesus just like the rest of them. Let me point out something to you. At the Last Supper, when Jesus said, hey, one of you are going to betray me, not one of them said, it's Judas. What did they do? They all said, is it me? not one looked at Judas. What does that tell you? It tells you guys humans are really good at playing the game. We can play this church game really well and be so far from God. So what 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 did he mean about these disciples? Well, Judas never had a magnetic pull towards Jesus. It was always pulling away. But these other 11 were real disciples. They had problems. They are going to mess up real bad. They weren't perfect, but something in them started pulling them in a new direction. And that new pull that comes from Christ and the Holy Spirit begins to pull us in the direction of obedience. And every true Christian has that. Every real Christian has a new magnetic pull that is put inside of them. It's the new nature, and it pulls you towards Jesus, not away from him. And it's not perfect, and you stumble and you fall, but something gets you back up, and you keep walking towards Jesus. And Jesus promises that he will never let you go and never forsake you. Even when you fall, he will forgive you, wash away your sins, wash your feet like he did for the disciples. But all real Christians have something pulling them towards Jesus that was not there before. Judas didn't have that. If you're lost, you don't have that. But if you're a Christian, you're moving in a new direction. Oh, you're not there yet, but at least you're not where he was. Right? Or were. Eh, I'm from Mississippi. I'm giving it my best shot. That is what Jesus means here. Now, when he talks about obedience, we need to know that obedience is a mark of discipleship. And the Bible supports that. In fact, let me give you a few things obedience does. First of all, obedience is a proof of your love for Jesus. He said that. In John 14, whoever has my commands and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Don't kid yourself. You can sing all the songs you want. Do you keep his word? Is it serious business for you to really keep his word? If you're a parent in this room, are you teaching your kids to keep his word? Or is that optional? Is just part of your life do great in school, play great sports, be good at what you do. Eh, Jesus, is that the way we treat it or, or is it flipped? And we go, no, the most important thing in our lives, family, kids, is to follow Jesus and keep his commands. Obedience shows that you're filled with the spirit. Did you know that? It's a mark of being filled with the spirit. Someone else is in charge, not you, if you're really a Christian. Ephesians 5 says, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. It says, do not get drunk with wine. Notice it didn't say not have wine. It says, don't get drunk with it, and here's why. That's debauchery. What it means is the the substance has control. But Paul says, instead be filled with the Spirit. If you're filled with the Spirit, it means there's this new thing happening inside of you that's empowering you to do what God calls you to do. Obedience also leads to receiving God's promises. The children of Israel in the desert, in the book of Numbers, including Moses himself, many of them will not see the promised land. You want to know why? Look at 14, 22 to 23. God says, all these people who saw my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt, yet they've decided to put me to the test ten times. Look at this. And they've not obeyed my voice. They will not see the land that I swore to give their fathers. In other words, A lot of God's promises for you that he would love to unleash in your life will not be unlocked unless you learn to obey him. Obedience leads to many of those blessings. Obedience is connected with our being declared righteous. You can't go to heaven unless you're declared righteous. But Romans 2.13 says, It's not hearers of the law that are righteous before God, but doers of the law. Not just hearers. You're all hearers by being here today. You heard it. But will you live it? then there is this idea. It is connected to our fellowship with other believers. You and I are supposed to hold one another accountable. That's why Thessalonians, Paul is writing this church, and he says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, that would be the word of God. Take note, have nothing to do with that person that they might be ashamed. Do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as a brother. In other words, you and I are not supposed to allow one another to live in unconfessed, Habitual sin without calling one another out I'm not supposed to just have dinner with you and go, everything's fine, man, you're struggling. No, like I'm supposed to sit down and go, hey, I love you too much to let you keep doing this. And then ultimately it's connected to our salvation. Obedience is connected to our salvation. Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9, or chapter 5, I'm sorry, verse 9, says, being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation, look at that last line, to all who obey him. Okay, now. You know we're a gospel church, so many of you may be hearing all this and you're going, wait a minute, that sounds like works-based religion to me, man. Chris, you've told us for 10 years that you can't obey your way to Jesus, but now it sounds like that's what you're saying. I want to give you two phrases, they're not original to me, two phrases that I think will fix it for you to help you understand that's not what we're saying at all, and it's not what Jesus meant in his prayer. These two things, you ready? Number one, obedience is validation of our faith, not the origin of it. So obedience is not how you get to Jesus, but if you are truly in Christ, obedience becomes a mark of your life. That's what that means. Secondly, obedience is evidence of our salvation, it's not the cause of it. Amen. I love babies. It's not so so we're not talking works-based salvation. So when Jesus said they've kept my word, that's not how they became believers they started keeping his word because he had filled them with his power, that new magnetic pull. And that's what happens for all of us. But it's evidence. That's why Jesus said, if anyone's going to follow me, he's going to have to deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Following Jesus demands a denial of ourselves. And then finally, in the last few phrases, Jesus does some really amazing things. First of all, he shows that he's willing to submit to his father. He says, I don't say anything that my father didn't tell me to say. And he is equal to the father. He's as much God as the father is God. And yet he submits. Jesus being fully equal was willing to submit. Let me tell you why I can submit in my marriage and my spouse can submit to me, and we can submit to one another, and we can submit to government authorities. All those things the Bible teaches us to do that's hard because submission is hard. The reason we do it is Jesus did it. Jesus submitted to the Spirit and the Father, and he was totally equal to them. And then Jesus says, I'm praying for them. Look at that. I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for them. Is it not good news that Jesus is praying for us? Have you ever thought about the fact that you have the ultimate prayer warrior? My grandmother prayed for me a lot when she was on the earth, and I'm glad she did. But she did not pray, I, I bet, like Jesus prays for me. Jesus knows you, knows what you need, and he prays for us. Unbelievable! The last two lines shows you how much he loves us. Like if you're in Christ... God loves you so much. Jesus loves you so much. He's praying for you. And then I love this last line. It teaches us as disciples, we belong to the Father. I want you to know that. If you're a disciple, you belong to the Father. Listen to that last line, verse 10. He says, all mine are yours and yours are mine. Do you hear the affection there? Hey, listen, I got three kids. When my girl Gracie kills it on the soccer field when she does something great on the soccer field. You know what I do? I stand up and I act like I did that. I go, she's mine. I never played soccer. You'd have to put me in an ambulance if I played a soccer game right now. But I go, she's mine. When my boy Cooper hits a ball into the tall weeds, I go, that's my boy. That's my boy. He did that. That's, he's mine. There's affection. There's love. When my son does something, when my son Gabe does something on a football field and he gets a tackle, he does his assignment. I go, that's my boy. There he is. That's my son. They're mine. They're mine. I love them. They're mine. There's this affection. And I want you to leave today knowing that Jesus in all of his godship and eternality, that Jesus loves you so much. He, if you want to know, wonder what God talks about about when they're talking about me, when he's talking about me, when the Godhead, when the Father and the Son and the Spirit, when they discuss me, wonder what they say. Here's what they say. You hear it. He's mine. She's mine. Yes, even in all your failures, when Jesus thinks of you, he thinks they're mine. They're no one else's. They're mine. I love them. I pray for them. And finally, I'm glorified in them. He's glorified in you. When you obey him, you glorify him. You show the world the weight of his value. And may we all glorify this great Jesus by obeying him in our lives. Jesus, thank you so much for the glory of this prayer and thank you for what you're teaching us through it. May we live it, not just hear it. May we do it, not just understand it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.